It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. But one day, an unlucky day for us both. Werner said that he had found a much better place, a city where we could execute our plans in daylight without being bothered with the law, a place where men were killed every day in the week, and that place was Wichita. He showed me several pieces in the newspaper about murders that had been committed, and in them it stated that the offenders were allowed their liberty. We came down to this place and opened out our shop in a small frame building on Main Street, over a millinery shop. We worked at our trade for a number of weeks and built up quite a business. I tried to persuade Winner to give it up, but he would not. Not knowing who we could get for our victim delayed us for a long time. A citizen of Wichita would not do, as it would create such a sensation that some of the facts might come out. At last, Winner went to Kansas City, saying that he had a friend who was looking for a job and would bring him home and use him, and that we could finish him up the same night. He was gone about a week and said that he had made arrangements with a painter by the name of Sevier to come down and work for them and that he would be down the next evening. I went to the depot to meet him, but he did not come. We received a letter next day stating that he had no money, and the pass that Winner gave him would not answer. We sent him the money by mail, and for fear that he would not get it, telegraphed also. He came down on the 12.30 train next evening. Winner met him at the depot, and brought him up to our room, where he slept. At this time we had about 30 gallons of benzene, and 20 gallons of coal oil together with a large amount of oils. Sevier appeared like a very clever, good-hearted fellow. My heart failed me, so that I could do nothing. But Winner was in his element. He knew just how to do everything and do it well. We began to prepare him for death by giving him brandy to drink, of which we had a large supply. After he had drank about a quart, we mixed ether with the rest, as it would not leave any deposit in the stomach. When he was so thoroughly unconscious that he could do nothing, we were prepared to do the bloody work which Winner's hands itched to perform. Winner poured down Severus' throat about a pint of ether which he had brought from Kansas City. We then placed his head in an iron pot filled with benzene and set fire to it. We watched him as his head began to simmer and crackle like burning meat. But as he was unconscious, I do not think he felt any pain. 
When his features were burned and disfigured beyond recognition, we laid him in the bed, which was saturated and dripping with oil. Our next operation was to fix up Winter so that it would give the public the impression that someone had tried to murder him as well as myself. I took a bunch of flesh between my thumb and finger and ran the blade of a pair of scissors through and cut it open. We then opened one of Sevier's veins and took out about a quart of blood which Winter spread over himself and then made himself look as though he had lost a great deal of blood. I then took my departure leaving my vest and empty pocketbook at the back of the shop and left on the train for Atchison, and from there went to Missouri. I escaped distraction on the train by riding between the baggage car and locomotive. Ever since then I have been in Missouri. I knew nothing about the developments until two days before my arrest, when I read the verdict of the jury in the Journal of Commerce. I do not know what Winner did after I left but I am sure he must have acted his part well, as he is a most accomplished rogue. This is all I know of the affair. I tried my best to persuade Winner to give up the thought of the crime, but could not succeed. I told him it would not succeed, especially at Wichita, for the officers are too sharp and vigilant, more so than any other city I know of in the West. I don't know how the officers found out where I was. J. W. McNutt, Count Palmeres and Madame Pau. In reasoning from circumstantial evidence, increased cogency is often given to the general weight of evidence by the conspicuous presence of an urgent motive for crime. A very interesting illustration is furnished in the trial in France of the Count de Palmeres for the murder of Madame Pau. It appeared that Madame Pau had been left a widow in 1859 with three children. The prisoner was a physician who knew and attended her husband. Madame Pau became the prisoner's mistress up to the time of his marriage in 1860 with Mademoiselle de Bizy. In June 1863, the prisoner proposed to the deceased to organize a fraud on six French and two English life insurance companies by insuring the life of the deceased, and then, on her simulating illness, by inducing the insurance companies to exchange the policies for annuities. Insurances were accordingly affected for 550,000 francs, for which the policies were made transferable by endorsement. The prisoner advanced the premiums, having the policies transferred by Madame Powell to himself by deed, and a will made by her in his own favor. The motive, of course, alleged for the murder of the deceased was that by her death the prisoner would come into immediate possession of the 550,000 francs and be relieved from what was possibly an inconvenient connection. The prisoner induced Madame Pau to feign illness, and it was alleged in the act accusation that in November 1863, he administered digitalis. Dr. Gordonneau was called in and was told she had fallen downstairs. This was contradicted at the trial by Madame Pau's children. Madame Pau died. Doctors Tadier and Marcin were charged by the court to make post-mortem examination. 
They made several experiments and in their official report concluded that the deceased had died by poison. Dr. Roussin thought the poison was digitalis, of which the prisoner had large quantities in his possession. It was alleged that the prisoner well knew that digitalis leaves no traces. In the course of the experiments, digitalis was tried on dogs and cats, and they died in the same way as other animals, to which expectorated matter and contents of the digestive tube of the deceased had been administered. Dr. Herbert, on the contrary, thought that the fact of the floor of the deceased room, which had contained matter in a state of putrefaction, having been recently scraped, was sufficient to account for all the circumstances of the death. It appeared that the prisoner had spoken freely to several witnesses about the contemplated fraud on the insurance companies. Now, if this fraud had been seriously contemplated or actually completed, and the prisoner was in the way of being put in the receipt of an income during Madame Powell's life, instead of the expectation of a lump sum at her death, the motive, of course, would have been all the other way. It was the prisoner's object to show that he did so seriously intend to carry out this fraud up to the last, and the case is almost unique in exhibiting a prisoner laboring to prove his innocence of one crime by proving his complicity in another only a few degrees less abominable. Some of his statements were inconsistent with manifest facts. Some, such as his assertion that he paid the deceased an annuity of 100 pounds, suicidal to his own professed motives. The result was his conviction and execution. In this case, the evidence was, on other grounds, just of that uncertain description which makes evidence of efficient motive all important. The defense, certainly, was most plausible and ingenious, and if concerted contemporaneously with the crime, showed a marvelous foresight and sagacity. For there were three courses left to the jury. The prisoner might have been proved guilty of no crime at all, or of attempted fraud, and not of the murder of the murder and not the attempted fraud. A distinct conception of the several motives likely to be present on each successive hypothesis was the most critical part of the investigation. End of section 58